We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Billy Martin, Baseball's Flawed Genius, the publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, the author, Bill Pennington. Please join me as we welcome Bill Pennington to the clubhouse. Thank you so much uh, for coming, Bill. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> and uh, Bill probably does not know this. Uh, the clubhouse has been here for five years, and we've been fortunate enough where Bill is now the fourth New York Times sports writer that we've had within that five-year period. Um, Ira Burkow... George Vesey, Harvey Aradin, and Bill Pennington. It's good company. So I think you're the cleanup hitter. Uh, that makes you the cleanup hitter. And uh, as I mentioned to Bill when we spoke, uh, when we were in touch a couple days ago, and as many of you know, we don't uh, do things as a lot of other places do, where we have the author come, stand up, read three pages, put everyone to sleep, even in a great book. <laughs> Uh, it's much more interesting, I think, and I think you agree, to have the discussion and the Q&A. So we'll obviously have a lot of time for Q&A. Uh, the only thing I, I want to do, though, that's a little bit different tonight is I'm not going to have Bill read anything from the book, but since he is a cleanup hitter, I just want to show you why. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph of the introduction so we're not even into chapter one yet, but I just want you to hear the first paragraph, and then I want to read one other sentence, which will lead us right into Billy Martin. Uh, the book opens in the introduction. The multicolored Christmas lights in the trees at the foot of the driveway dotted the crest of the ridge that is Potter Hill Road. You could see them from a distance of several hundred yards as you approach from beneath the rise. Little bulbs of red, blue, and green piercing the snowy darkness. That's why he's a cleanup hitter. <laughs> and, and then the, the one line I want to read, which will get us going, is, again from the introduction, in that time, I discovered that Billy was without question one of the most magnetic, entertaining, sensitive, humane, brilliant, generous, insecure, paranoid, dangerous, irrational, and unhinged people I had ever met. <laughs> so that brings us to Billy Martin. Uh, and I think maybe that... Uh, <laughs> Every time I do an interview, they read that sentence. Oh, they do? Yeah, it must be a good one. Yeah, excellent, yeah. Uh, so if you could just give us a little background to get us going on the... Uh, this is extensively researched, and I know a lot of it comes from your time as the beat reporter, but if you could just give us a little feel for how much effort and research and time go went into getting it to this point. Yeah, it was about 30 months, actually, but it was also about 30 years. Uh, in 19, I mean, I, I met Billy in, well, I met, met him in 81 when I was first, you know, when I was just got out of college and was covering baseball on the fringes of it. I wasn't a beat guy. I was the guy that helped out. And uh, in 83, I knew him a little bit better when he was with the Yankees, but not really. You're not, they don't 
the managers don't really take you seriously unless you're <laughs> one of the beat guys, either for the, their team or another team. And uh, so in '85, I I was made full time. I was on. I was now the guy, traveling beat writer, and. Uh, Yogi Berra was the manager, and, and you know, and, you know, I was I was working in a New Jersey paper then, so uh, I was fairly intimidated beyond the, the Yankee beat with you know Murray Chass and you know some heavyweights of the time, uh, heavyweight baseball writers. Uh, uh, Bill Madden was on the beat then. Uh, anyway, so um, uh, I thought, okay, Yogi Berra, I can handle Yogi Berra. That'll be you know he's like a big teddy bear. That'll be you know that'll be that'll be helpful. And then 16 games into the season, they fired him and hired Billy. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I didn't sign up for this. I mean, this guy is scary. So, uh, uh, but I got along really well with him. I, you know, the first day that I introduced myself, he was like, okay, kid, you know, like, um, you're new and I'm just coming back to this. And a lot of these writers, you know, we've, had, we've been down this road before. That, you know, they don't like me. Some of them, I don't like them. You know, we've, got our, we've had our wars. And, you know, you, we're starting fresh. You know, if you're good to me, I'll be good to you. You got, you got any questions, pull me aside and stuff. And he was good. He really, really helped me. Um, so at any rate, um, I, you know, I, I covered that team, which was a you know, fascinating team and a good team. And then he was around for another couple of years, and I was always around him. And, and, uh, and then, uh, but we still get along, although one night he wanted to beat me up, but that's another story. But... Uh, and then he dies in 89, and I went up to the crash scene the day after it happened. It was the day after Christmas Day. And I went to the funeral, and I interviewed Steinbrenner afterwards. And, and then, you know, he just stuck with me as this fascinating guy. But I was, you know, at that time, I was like 28, 29 years old, and I thought, well, I'm going to meet a lot of people. I'm just getting started. And, and then 30 years later, I still hadn't met anybody like him. <laughs> and, I, and I realized that if you were going to go do this kind of book, go back and try and figure out how he got to be the way he was and go back and talk to his sisters who were still alive and all four of his wives who were still alive and, and um, his cousins that he grew up with and his minor league teammates, who, some of whom are still alive, and his people who played in the 50s. That you, if you don't do it now, if you try and do it 10 years from now, you know, those people might not be able to tell those stories, or some of them at least. So I, that's what I did. I took like almost three years and I went back to the beginning. And you know, I had the, the, the book was contract was sold, but the point was, let's let's reconstruct Billy, because there were the last biography was right after he died. There was a couple right after he died, and you know, they kind of told the same stories, and there was a couple, you know, it was really focusing on what we already know about him. And I thought there's a lot more to know because the guy I knew was was like I said, could be irrational and scary and unhinged, but could also be. Fascinating and funny and charming and generous and and I just start, I thought there was a more complete story to tell, which is why it's almost 500 pages. <laughs> Before we get into those different relationships that Billy had, uh, just a question: the book, as as I other than John, who's read the book, that beautiful first paragraph of the introduction leads us into, as you said, you were at the crash site 24 hours after yeah. uh, it happened. Just out of interest, was anybody else there at that moment? Uh, Nobody else went up from New York. Um, I knew the funeral wasn't for a couple of days, and I, I, I just thought it made sense. Let's go to the scene. Even though his, his widow had left, there was no... I just, you know, I don't know, basic <laughs> reporting instinct, go to the scene of the crime. Um, and it was fascinating because it was... And that's, you know, always has stuck with me. It was this lonely little country road that he had this auto accident on. 
I mean, it, it, it was just a pastoral place. It didn't look like you could get hurt, you know, skydiving there. It didn't look like there was anything you could do that you could get injured, let alone killed right there. And, uh, and there were people leaving things already. Fans were flocking to the scene. And, and I just remember sort of nosing around, and there was a sheriff there, and he's explaining the whole accident to me. And finally he says, you know, uh, if Billy had had a seatbelt on, he'd be alive today. And, you know, I, I realized that was true. But I also looked at him and thought to myself, you know, boy, you didn't know Billy Martin. Because if there was anybody who went through life without a seatbelt on, it was Billy Martin. You know. <laughs> so uh, most of the books that we, that we discuss, it's about someone's life and then they're a ball player. Or someone's life and they're a manager. And other than uh, Mort Zachter, who happens to be here tonight, who wrote... The other great baseball book of the year so far, uh, the Gil Hodges book, which obviously two completely different types of guys, but ball players, managers, uh, and so we'll, we'll kind of touch on on both areas. But I think maybe if we can talk about like relationships and Billy's relationship and kind of take us through a, a, a few, and then maybe whatever hits you from, the, uh, from some of them. And the first one I just wanted to ask about was Billy's mother. <laughs> <laughs> I met Billy's mother actually. Uh, she was a pet. Um, not surprisingly, uh, uh, it's funny you say that. I mean, Billy had several really important, influential re- relationships, uh, and it's almost like he would trade. I mean, his mother lived until uh, she died, like two weeks before he died. Uh, but uh, she was pivotal in the beginning, and then she kind of traded him off to Casey Stengel, and then. You know, I mean, uh, and Stengel and, and traded him off in some ways to Mantle and Mantle, you know, I mean, it was it, and then he had wives that became the dominant personality in his life. But anyway, his, his mother was uh, was just this, uh, she was only, she was barely five feet tall, although if you said that to her, she might punch you right in the mouth. <laughs> um, she was this real, like, feisty, you know, four-letter words, every other syllable practically. You know, I mean, uh, swearing was, uh, her, her daughter told me in the book, Billy's sister, said, you know, swearing was like breathing to my mother. She just, you know, she woke up and started swearing, and then she swore all day long until, until her head hit the pillow, and then maybe she stopped, although she said she probably swore in her sleep, too. <laughs> um, and she was just uh, ferocious, and, you know, she had this uh, attitude of, like, don't take any crap from anybody about anything, you know. Uh, one time they brought Billy's brother home. The police brought the... the, the, uh, the uh, Tudo, Frank, the, the brother home, and it was kind of nebulous exactly what Frank had done, and she, she chased the, co- like, she was going to beat the cops up, <laughs> she chased them out the door, and there's other s- stories about her physically getting in fistfights over things in the neighborhood in Berkeley, they lived in a really rough neighborhood, uh, where she would, she had these fistfights, where she won with, with men, and she would get in these fistfights with <laughs> the men and beat them up, and uh, so if you wonder where Billy got some of this uh, pugnacious uh, tendencies, but she also was, you know, she she was dangerous and kind of crazy too. She, and, and it was a very dark, uh, uh, I don't know about dark, but a very uh, difficult upbringing and a, ba- a really bad neighborhood, really tough time. Billy, you know, it's one of the things I didn't know was just how uh, hard Billy had grown up, just how rough that neighborhood was. And you know, the, the mother went before. Uh, Billy was born, may have spent time as a prostitute because her sister ran a brothel. Um, and uh, Billy had, you know, no, cl- I had one pair of clothes, one set of jeans to wear to school for years after years. 
uh, I was talking to his cousins who go across the street, and the cousin said, uh, yeah, like if one of us had a date, like I might have pants, and I'd go over to my cousin and say, do you have a shirt I can wear? And then I'd go to the next house and say, do you have a tie? And you have a sport coat? And, you know, I've only got one good shoe. Do you have, like, at least another good shoe that maybe matches my shoe? And then they said, and the worst thing that could happen in the neighborhood was somebody dying because then they took the best clothes and buried that guy. In it. <laughs> and that was ruin everybody. <laughs> and so it was, uh, he really had it rough. You know, so, yeah, I mean, his mother is certainly one of them. Casey's another one where he really never knew his father. Well, he met him later in life, like in his 20s he met him. But, so growing up, he, he really didn't, he had a stepfather who he was close to, but he didn't know his, his father. And Casey never had children, so like, you know, Billy became the, the son that Casey never had, and Casey became the father that Billy never had. So yeah, there were, there, were, there were quite a few as he went along. And he kept changing. It was amazing how he could, his core values didn't change, and he would still be this rough around, sometimes rough around the edges, and very, if you pushed him, he'd, he'd push back twice as hard. But he also had these periods that I just didn't know. Like, I mean, for example, in, in the in the mid to late '60s, he lived in the suburbs of Minneapolis, literally in a house with a that literally had a white picket fence in front of it, <laughs> and he w- was not drink for months at a time. And most nights he sat by the fire, reading Civil War books, smoking a pipe. And he did this for like seven or eight years. I was like, "This is Billy Martin." <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't. Visualize this guy, and I, and I had said to the wife who was married to at the time, Gretchen. He was mar- married to Gretchen for 19 years. I said, "Well, what, what did he do? Like, you know, before dinner? Oh, he'd be in the garden tending. He loved to grow the tomatoes, and he just would putter around the garden. And it just didn't, you know. I mean, he had he was more complex than everybody realized. Oh, it sounds like Billy Martin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so before we get into some other Yankees, or you, you touched on Casey Stengel, but Part of this, which I thought was fascinating, it was a ball player that I always loved. He was one of my favorites growing up, but I had no idea about this relationship. Uh, Rod Carew. Yeah. Uh, just a little bit about that. Well, uh, Rod Carew, when, when Billy took over his, his first managerial job with the Twins in 1969, he had been a coach in uh, Minnesota, and he had, they had several uh, players of color on that team. Um, and they didn't know what to do. The Twins didn't know what to do with him. And they thought of Carew as kind of a hothead and uh, a, a, an unpredictable sort. And so they, you know, either Billy befriended these guys or they just said, Billy, can you please try and figure them out? We, you know, and Billy learned Spanish and, and uh, or good enough Spanish and sort of took these guys under his wing. And so when he became manager of the Twins, actually, Carew, his family was, his parents were divorcing and he was having a, bad game and he didn't even want to be there and he grounded out and he didn't even run first and he ran over in the dugout and ran into the clubhouse and started taking off his clothes he was going to go home taking off his uniform he was going to go home and Billy followed him he's the manager but he left the game and he followed him into the thing and said you know Rodney like talk to me you know and you know and so more Rodney talked about his parents and he said you know I'm from a broken home and he, and he went and got a he says but I'm going home Billy I'm going home you know and and Billy went and got a security guard and put it at the door and said, don't let him leave until the game's over. And uh, they just developed this incredible bond. I mean, there was a, like a... Carew, Carew considers Billy uh, one of his fathers. I mean, I talked to him at length about it two or three different times. And, he, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, years later, Reggie obviously doesn't get along with Billy. Reggie has a lot of things to say about Billy. If Reggie walked through this door right now, he would be saying bad things about Billy. I mean, I talked to him, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's there. 
And when I talked to Carew about that, who played with Reggie and is friends with Reggie, he went on forever about how he just doesn't understand him. He's got him all wrong. I mean, you know, it's interesting that, that they both could have such different perspectives. But Carew loved Billy. So did Ricky Henderson. So did Willie Randolph. So did, I mean, there's just so many guys that, uh, that just thought the world of him. And then there were, the, you know, there were quite a few people that didn't like him. <laughs> well, for whatever it's worth, we've had uh, one no-show in five years at the clubhouse, and it was Reggie Jackson. So, uh, not surprising. Uh, so, so it's not likely he's going to walk through the door. Probably right not. <laughs> not anymore. Now the door closes. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll skip around a little bit. But you had mentioned that you uh, you were in touch with each of his four wives. It's good he didn't have 12 wives. Uh, well, they only lived to be 61. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, any, uh, any very uh, kind of uh, curveballs or really uh, interesting little quick stories about any of the, the four wives or something that took you off guard? Well, almost everything his widow said took me, not every, everything, but a lot of what she said took me off guard because she hadn't spoken in, since his death. She had re- spurned, like a week afterwards, she spoke a little bit. And then she refused to do any interviews since. And so I, I talked to her in and I basically said, you know, this is probably going to be your last chance to tell your side of this. I don't know how many more people are going to come along. I'm right, Billy Martin biographies. And, and, uh, and so, and... You know, it took time, but eventually she decided to talk to me. So she she had a really fascinating perspective in that she really thought Billy, for they had talked, for example, about his drinking and maybe and the fact that he might have to go seek help. She thinks if he had lived even a year longer that he would have done that. Um, she described, you know, scenes of him in the last year or two of his life. He lived in a farm in upstate New York, and he just showed me all these pictures and movies of him just riding a tractor around all day. I didn't see a flask or anything with him. I mean, he just rode the tractor around. I don't know. Uh, he did. He did have plenty of habits of going into town and having to be driven home at the same time. But they all gave different perspectives. It's, it's interesting. Each of them uh, had something different to say about him in one way or another. Uh, you know, different stages of his life. You know, his first wife was basically like a high school sweetheart. So you get the early perspective on on Billy, and then she's there as he becomes a star in New York, and so. She sees a changed Billy once he becomes famous. So that sort of sets up that split. And the next wife doesn't come along for several years, and she's there for almost 20 years. And she has a different perspective because she sees him pretty much after he leaves the Yankees, and he's fallen apart as a ball player, and his life is kind of disintegrating in a, in a sense. He doesn't know where he's going to go. He didn't pl- plan on managing. And so, you know, that's those years where he, he's, you know, working for a brewery in Minneapolis and as a low-paid scout or a coach for the Twins. And, and then when he goes to New York, that's, she doesn't go with him. So then that and another completely different Billy sort of comes along, and now he marries someone, well, we're not quite sure, but at least 25, 27 years younger than him. And, you know, and, that, and she's from the Bronx, and so like that, you know, that. So everyone is different. Um, what's most interesting to me is that all four had nice things to say. Like, I couldn't get any of the four to say anything bad about him, which, I mean, how, you know, I have three ex-wives, and, have, and they don't have anything bad to say. I mean, I don't know, Billy must have been doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ju- Billy Martin Jr., yeah. that was, uh, he had the son with the second wife, or? Uh, yes, the, okay. yeah. and he had a daughter with the first wife. And uh, what was it? What was the father-son relationship like? Yeah, a little. Di- I mean, you know, uh, good for the most part. Uh, and Billy Jr. Now he used to go by Billy Joe. Is is very much sort of the care 
taker of his father's legacy as much as he can be. Uh, was very helpful with me um, in terms of opening up doors when I needed it. And uh, uh, but they, you know, he was on the road with with his father a lot. He had some really good insights to what life on the road was like. I mean, he didn't see any of the, the carousing or the womanizing that Billy was doing. Uh, he, you know, Billy would shield that from his son, and even though as he got older he kind of knew what was going on but um, you know he, he was good at describing sort of you know the rituals and the way he lived and how he was post game after the reporters left and you know tra- you know, smashing things in offices and what would set him off and how he would then just like stop and be fine and go like okay so where are we going to dinner you know I mean because that's true I saw that myself but he could just tear, th- tear his uniform off throw it against the wall kicks things blah 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 Screaming and yelling, you know, based on just like one question he didn't like, and then he'd stop and he'd say, "All right, well that's one question. What's the next question?" And he'd just sit down and he'd just sit back down, and everything would be fine. And he'd get his pipe and he'd light his pipe, and it'd be like, "Who was this lunatic who was here like <laughs> ten seconds ago?" And then he'd be calm, everything would be fine. And the next question, he'd say, "Well, that's a good question." And then he'd give this answer, you know, a thoughtful answer. He's, I don't know, different sort of guy. Well, along those lines, which uh, the story's in the book of. Uh, uh, Cleveland, 1986, when uh, he wanted to maybe go at it with a certain writer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Billy was a broadcaster back then, and I covered him in 85, and I knew him well and and, uh, and all that, and we never really had any problems. Um, but, you know, as, as Mickey Mantle said, it's an almost semi-famous line, he said, Billy's the only guy that can hear someone give him the finger. <laughs> and it's really true, Billy. If you were sitting, if you were sitting at a bar with him, and I actually saw this happen, I was. And and back over there on the other side of the bar, two guys would start laughing. He'd turn and say, "They're laughing in my ears." And he'd say, "No, Billy." The one guy probably told the other guy a joke. He says, "No, they're making fun of me. They're making fun of me. They're talking about my ears or my nose or something." And then he'd say. They're crazy. And he built up this... He started to get angry at these two guys who had done nothing more than laugh on the other side of the bar. And he didn't usually act on those things. He really did. More, many more people came after him. Than, you know, I never saw him go after anybody. Well, other than Ed Whitson, but that was another misunderstanding. But I mean... Uh, but anyway, so we, we had a rain out in Cleveland. Uh, it was about 8 or 9 o'clock. Everybody had already eat, eaten. We had the whole Yankee party ended up in a bar across the street, pretty near the old municipal stadium in Cleveland. Because back then, this doesn't happen anymore, sadly. Back then, you know, the writers would hang out, the players and coaches, everybody would, you know, hang out. If In a situation like that, the whole traveling circus, the Yankee circus, trainers, everybody would be, broadcasters would be in probably one of two bars, the hotel bar or some other bar or whatever. So I was in there, and, I, and, I, and he was a broadcaster then, and I was across the bar, and he's waving at me and stuff. And I was like, that's weird, you know, like, I mean, I hardly talked to him when he was a broadcaster. And that's why is he waving at me. And then finally, he goes to the bathroom, and he was sitting with Killer Kane, who was the traveling secretary of the Yankees, a, like a Damon Runyon-type character, and, and uh, great guy. And, uh, you know, as soon as he leaves, like, Killer Kane's motion made me to come over. And I go over, and he goes, hey, kid. He says, uh, did you write something about Billy? You know, like last week or something? I said, no. He says, uh, did you write, like, that uh, the team's better off with him in the broadcast booth than the dugout? And I said, no, I haven't typed his name in like a month. And he said, are you sure? Like, did you say that like he's washed up as a manager and he should never manage again? And I said, no, I, I think I'd remember that. And he said, well, Billy thinks you did write that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, 
it's a then it's somebody else. I mean, you know, somebody else wrote this. I didn't write it. And he goes, well, that's not what he thinks. He says, and he's getting really like, you know, peeved. He's getting angry. You know how he gets. And I said, uh, yeah. He says, so if I were you, he says, I would just get the hell out of here. You know. So uh, I said, all right. You know, and as I said in the when I've written about this, you know, when you're on the baseball beat, it's quite a grind. I mean, you, you know, you get a you get a night off, you get a rain out. It's like a snow day when you're in grade school. You know, I mean, this is like. Hallelujah! You know, you're, <laughs> in a, you're in a bar before you know one. Usually, you're walking in, they're giving the last call, and you get like one beer, and then you're you know back in the hotel again. So, um, I didn't really want to leave, but uh, so you know, I'm kind of nursing my beard. People having fun, I'm talking, and I, finally, I finished my beard. I start to go, put my coat on, start to go out, and I see Billy coming at me this way, you know, and he's going to intercept me before I get through. He does, and he stops, and he goes, "Ah, Mr. Paddington," which he never called me, Mr. Paddington. <laughs> And he goes, Mr. Pennington, you know, and he's shaking my hand, and he's like squeezing the life out of my hand. And he goes, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, I, you wrote some bad stuff about me. And I said, no, Billy, I didn't. It's a misunderstanding, blah, blah, blah. And we're going back and forth, and he keeps insisting it's me, and he's not letting go of my hand. And he says, we should go outside and settle our differences right now. And I said, Billy, we don't have any differences. You know, like, this is, there's nothing to go outside and settle. And he just keeps, goes, no, I think we should. And he's kind of like trying to lead me by the arm towards the door, you know. And I was like, oh, God. And uh, finally, out of the corner of my eye, God bless his soul, Killer Kane comes over, hobbling over, and uh, and goes, hey, Billy, come on, come on, like, you know, leave the kid alone. He was just leaving, you know, we'll settle this tomorrow, you know, come on, come on, come on. He's, I'll buy you a drink, you know, and he's like pulling him away. And finally, you know, Billy says, all right, but, you know, we're going to settle our differences, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this, you know, and he leaves me alone. And so, you know, I spend the rest of the night by myself soaking. <laughs> and uh, and happy that I got out of there though, and uh, and then I saw him in the press room the next day, and I went over to him and he's sitting with Hank Bauer, and uh, so he introduced me to Bauer and finally I said, Billy, I don't know what that was all about last night. Someone misunderstanding. I didn't write anything. And he looks at me, he's looking at me, and he goes, Yeah. And, he, and I keep talking and saying, I didn't write, anything. you know, I haven't typed your name in a month. Love it. It's all a misunderstanding. And he goes, Finally, he just stops and he goes, Okay. He says, uh, he says, you know, kid, he says, I don't remember what made me so mad at you. He says, so here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm just going to forget about it. <laughs> 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 and we shook hands, and uh, we never had a, you know, there wasn't a crossword between us thereafter. Wild story. Uh, before we get to the uh, questions from our knowledgeable clubhouse crowd, I just want to touch a little bit uh, on the managing side, well, not the that part of the managing side, but um, some of this this would hold true for me as a baseball lunatic, and probably for a lot of these folks listening to the podcast and others. I enjoyed everything in the book, but in particular, a lot of the uh, the stories about Billy as a baseball strategist, I found I was I found fascinating, and I was jealous that I I couldn't have been with him to like be there when he was. Yeah. So. Before we get to some stories about that, I just want, uh, I think most people know this, but I just want to put this in perspective. This is Billy, Ma- uh, Billy Martin, was a manager for 16 years for five different teams. Not That doesn't count five times with the Yankees, that's once, uh, one team. But uh, this is a little bit as just, sometimes numbers lie, but sometimes they don't lie. So the first team he managed, the 69 Twins, they went from 79 wins before he got there 
to 97 wins in his first year. His first Tigers team went from 79 wins to 91 wins. His first Texas team went from 57 wins to 84 wins. His first Yankees team from 83 wins to 97 wins. And Oakland, a 54-win team, won 83 games when he took over. There's a little bit of a consistency there. And the stories of, the, uh, as him, of him as a strategist, whether it's kind of flipping it now, as him the mentor to Buck Showalter, or if you want to speak about that a little, or any of these other uh, strategy-type stories that are in here. I, I, I thought they were fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Um, I tried really hard to get people to explain to me what he did and, 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 and that, that made him win. I mean, it's true, you know. A very high winning percentage. I think right now he's 21st among all managers ever. Uh, and considering that he took over all lousy teams, that's pretty remarkable. Um, uh, so people were talking about, I mean, uh, you know, the, the beginning of it all was sort of an us against them mentality that he, that he built up in his teams. And uh, even against player against player sometimes. Um, but it was also this attacking style, which very much was like make. Uh, you know, the, everybody else worried about what we're going to do, and then, then it'll be everything will be to our advantage. But then there were very specific things, and you're right. You know, Showalter talked about, you know, the various. Uh, Showalter was great talking about Billy because he, uh, few people seem to know this, but he was on Billy's staff in 1988 and really kind of learned at Billy's knee as a minor. He was a minor league manager then, and Billy molded him in a lot of ways. And if you want to see what Billy would look like as a modern manager, that's the guy without the. Alcoholism, um, uh, and uh, you know, sees everything very aggressive. You know, the, uh, you know, Billy said that he learned very early in an early age that he could see the whole field at once. That he didn't have to look at the third baseman and then the shortstop and then the second baseman and see where they were playing. He could just look out in the field and see where everybody was playing, including the outfit. He could see everything, and so it led to him to do things differently. You know, I mean, he did all kinds of crazy, you know, things that that worked. I mean, he used to have triple steals. I mean, the bases loaded, he'd send all three guys. <laughs> I mean, wh- when have you ever seen that other than a little league game by accident? Or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he did it over and over. And he, and you know, and it's explained in there. It's someone involved, but you know, he, he he thought there was a reason for that. You know, that there was there was reasons why he would almost always get a run usually. And he had all kinds of trick plays that other people didn't have. I mean, he had the, the usual things: first and third guy from first falling down. But he had a way of doing that. He made sure that they would end up making that throw. He had this crazy trick play where guy was on third base. Uh, he would have the pitcher throw, and everybody was in on it, all the fielders, throw pretty high, almost at the head of the batter, if it was a right-handed batter only. And the point was that the runner on third, leading off third, would freeze when he'd see his teammate almost get killed. And, uh, and everybody else was in on the play, and the catcher would come up you know, catch the ball right behind the guy's head as he ducked and be throwing and the third baseman would be covering and they'd pick that guy off every time. You know, and as Billy said, the only way it wouldn't work <coughs> is if I'd have a pitcher who was too scared to throw at the bat. You know, I mean, I've heard him tell that story a million times, you know, except he used saltier language. But, you know, he said that would be the only way that play. He said that play worked every single time unless I had a pitcher who was afraid to throw at the guy's head. You know, like, uh, you know, throw his head, you know. Um, but, you know, he was from a different era, you know. I mean, Billy got beamed and everything. So, yeah, there was there was all these. And, and if you think he can't really see, he, he, was, he couldn't really see the whole field. I'll just tell you one story. The second game of the 1976 World Series, uh, 76 season, Billy's first full year as a Yankee manager, 
They lose the first game, of the, the opening game in Milwaukee when Hank Aaron hits one or two home runs. Last season he plays. I think it's one of the last home runs he hits. And um, maybe not. And uh, second game, they uh, uh, the Yankees come back and they're ahead by three. In the ninth inning, Billy puts in this reliever, Dave Pagan, who was a uh, like second-year player from Canada, not much of a resume. He gives up a grand slam home run to Don Money. Game's over. Walk-off home run. Yankees are walking out the field dejectedly. The Brewers are mobbing money at home plate. Billy comes charging out of the dugout. And Pagan thinks he's coming after him and turns and starts running the left field. Thinks that the ma- my manager is going to beat me up on the field for giving up this grand slam to lose the game. And so he starts running away, and Billy's not going after Pagan. He's going for the first base umpire. And he says, you called timeout just before the pitch. And the first base umpire was standing almost in right field. He says, you you called timeout. You put your arm up just before the pitch. He says, I saw it. And indeed... That's exactly what happened, and 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 he, the umpire wasn't waving his arms before that. He was just going to let it go. And Billy, they had to put all of, they had to put the fielders back in the field. Home run didn't count. Yankees won the game, and then went on to run away with the with the division that year. I mean, you know, I mean, he really could see. At least by that story, it proves to me he could really see everything. I mean, why was he looking at the first base umpire? Yeah, it's kind of like where they say Wayne Gretzky would see the ice in slow motion. Yeah, it's kind of the same. It's it's I guess it's a born gift in some yeah. way. No, he had like you could sit at like uh, after a game or sit at dinner and stuff with him, and you would learn a lot of baseball. He would get the salt shakers and pepper shakers and move them around and be talking about stuff. And he, you know, and this is why this works. This is why you never. This is why you never hit and run with a left-handed pitcher up. You know, left-handed pitcher guy at first, you never hit and run. And he'd get in this big long you know discussion about why that's such a dumb play, and. Uh, so you'd learn a lot of baseball. I know I did, and I think most people did. I mean, Showalter had a, a, a saying. He said, you learn a lot of baseball before the fifth drink and then duck. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a ton of great strategy stories in here like that. I mean, they're, they're fascinating. And uh, on that note, who wants to lead us off? I'm just going to ask, with his interest in the Civil War, was that how he was interested in it? Would he analyze battles and... He did. And strategy. He did, and he knew. I, I don't know that it was. I obviously, you know, there's a lot of baseball managers that have studied military history. You know, they see sort of some links in how to lead men, and I mean, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, I, I, you know, I, the only thing I know about the roots of how he got into that was <clears throat> that the only uh, I talked to one of his teachers in high school, and the only subject he was good at really was history, and. Because uh, I, I was trying to say, you know, did, was he, did he talk about Civil War history? He said, no, but he liked all American history. And he especially liked the Old West. He seemed to really like the 19th century. That's what they, I was told. So I'm assuming that's where that started. I, I never asked him, how did you, hey, Billy, how did you get into this? But, but it could, I don't know, I never did. But he was, he really knew his stuff in the Civil War. There's a, I, there was something I wrote, there was a story I wrote in the book um, that got taken out because as long as this book is now, it started out even longer. Um, and uh, thank God we took some of these things out. But uh, I was in a, I, I, don't know, I don't know why all these building stories start with a bar, but I was in a bar <laughs> with him. And, um, and uh, when he was bored, he would ask like Civil War questions of like, you know, the whole bar. You know, like, I mean, if there was 100 people in there, but if there was 
ten people in there, he'd say, hey, okay, what was the first state to secede from the Union? You know, and anybody that answered right would get a free drink, you know, or whatever. And uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the question was, but the bartender was a substitute history teacher. So the bar, so the first couple of questions, you know, South Carolina's first state to secede from the Union, whatever. I mean, you know, he knew it, and lots, lots of people, you know, and I forget what it was now, but whatever it was, the bar the bartender was insistent that it was Pickett's chart or whatever the answer was. And Billy was like, "You call yourself a history teacher? What does it matter with you? Anybody knows that it's this, you know, that, and you know that it was Antietam, and you know." And he would go on and on and on and on and on. And he said, uh, and they started pulling people in the bar. What do you think it is? Do you believe him? Or do you believe me? You know, I believe you, Billy. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, good, get him a drink. You know, like, it was not another. And, uh, and anyway, bartender stood by his gun and said, I'm, you know, I know I'm right, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he said, uh, I walked into his office the next day, and he had, I don't know where he got it. I couldn't have been carrying it. He must have gone to a bookstore. He had, like, you know, a book. And he sees me, and he turns around, and he shows me, see, see, you know, blah, blah, you know. He's a bartender, that idiot, you know. And, uh, and then I, the next day I walked in, and he said, he said, I went on back to that same bar and I went to that bartender and I showed him this book and blah, 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 blah. He says, you know, and you know, I showed him how stupid he was. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's got nothing better to do. Yeah, you know? not much. I, so I, I don't know, that's as much as I know really about the Civil War. Just sort of related to that question, I mean, he's an opinionated guy has interesting history. Did he have any particular point of view about U.S. politics or religion? Did he have any? Well, he was a devout Catholic. He was much more religious than people, I mean, realize. I mean, he, uh, when uh, growing up, he was the kid who would get all the other kids in the neighborhood to go to church. His cousins told me stories about him, you know, banging on the window Sunday morning. Let's go, let's go, get up, get out of bed, we're going to church. And uh, he gave, uh, he won a car for the 1953, the 53 most valuable player in the World Series. He gave that car to the local priest. Um, he was... Uh, and he went, you know, the, 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 the priests up in Binghamton where he died, they knew who he was. He'd come in there. And, and uh, anyway, so he was very religious. But uh, politics, I never really heard him talk too much about it. Although, I would, I mean, he's, he very much sided with, uh, later in life, by the time he got to Texas, he never left Texas in a sense. He, was, he continued to live in Texas in the offseason. Te- you know, he was a tech. He thought of himself as a Texan, even though he wasn't a Texan. He thought of himself as like a California Texan or something, you know, and, and a New Yorker, of course, too. But you know, so I don't. I never heard him say it, but I would venture to say Texas probably molded some of his thinking on that. But he was really religious, and, and it led to these really crazy paradoxes. I mean, Richie Garcia, the umpire, told me that you know, Billy used to wear a little crucifix about this big in between the N and the Y on his cap. He put it in a little pin, he put it in between the N and Y on his cap. If you look at old pictures of him, yeah. it's always there. And uh, Garcia said, he'd come out, and Billy's screaming and yelling at me, and spits flying all over him, and he's calling me all these names, and I just keep looking at this <laughs> person. <laughs> you know, like, something's not right here. You know, so, uh, interesting. So I have two questions. Um, I think Billy was the manager of the pie team, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe, what's, is there any kind of interesting backstory there? How long was he sort of sitting on that information about Brett's bad number one? 
And number two, um, it's interesting to hear the stories about how you know, he's kind of an angry guy, kind of a dark figure, yet he was married four times, came back to the Yankees five times, and it almost seems like he's a quiet optimist. Um, yeah, how do you kind of reconcile those two things about his character? Yeah, um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, he knew about the Brett bat. Craig Nellis told him uh, several weeks, uh, maybe more than a month. I, uh, you know, the anniversary was not that long ago. It was just two years ago. I'm trying to remember. Um, so, yeah, no, he was just waiting. And he did that with a lot of things. He would observe, like, that's one of the Showalter told or talked to me about that Billy talked to him about, was, like, Showalter tells a story. If there's a, there's a, a ball in the gap, um, hitting the gap, he says, don't watch the runner. You know it's going to be a double, maybe a triple. You know where he's going. He says, don't, don't watch the fielders. I mean, they're chasing the ball in the gap. You already know that. Watch everybody else. You know, are they are they aligning the relay in, in the right place? Is the is the pitcher covering third back on third base? You know, is is everybody in line? You know, it's just, that's something you may learn, be able to use next time there's a ball in the gap or something. Or you know, so you know, uh, he he always held things in uh, you know in, the, in abeyance to use in another time. And as far as um, Billy, I, I've done a lot of interviews since this book came out and. Uh, Frequently, I was on Morning Joe, and Mark, Mike Barnacle kept talking to me about how troubled he was and this tormented soul. You know, I mean, Mark Barnacle, you know, I get this a lot from people who don't like the Yankees <laughs> <laughs> and therefore don't like him. And, you know, Barnacle grew up in Boston, he's a great journalist. I'm not picking on him, but like, uh, and he kept saying how tormented and tortured he was, and blah, blah, blah. And finally, I just said, even though it's not good to disagree with the host on national television, um, <laughs> I said, well, you know, he really wasn't that troubled. You know, I mean, he, he was, he would, he had all these things happen to him, and he had his demons, and he, and he, he had terrible disappointments, and he took them very hard. He would be devastated. But he would rebound very quickly. I mean, within a week, he'd be fine. You'd see him. He'd be fine. You know, he was, he didn't take, he didn't go through life like, oh, jeez, I got fired again, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, honestly, or he got fired nine times. He wouldn't have just keep coming back. I mean, um, so he wasn't. Uh, I, would, I don't want to say he was happy-go-lucky, but he, he really things didn't stick to him. He, he was too busy having fun. I mean, he was a lot of fun to be around, he, and that's why he had a lot of friends. He was always, you know, he was the kind of guy that, and not just in bar situations. He was the kind of guy that would walk into a hotel lobby, you know, that everybody in the baseball would spend a lot of time in hotel lobbies, and, and he'd be in there and he'd be like looking and he'd see some kid and he'd come over to the kid and he'd do a magic trick. He used to. Had to be able to do a Donald Duck voice. He'd do the kids love him. He'd do the Donald Duck voice. He'd, he'd you know introduce himself to people. He was very glib and you know and he he enjoyed himself in life. So he wasn't down for long. I don't think he was. I mean, there were times where I think he thought, "Geez, I don't know if I ever get back in baseball." But then when he started to see, he was always keep getting hired. I think he got over that. Yes. How did he manage his finances? Oh, he was horrible. He, died. <laughs> he, he, died, he basically died with no money at all. Um, he had assets of uh, the farm, memorabilia, you know, not memorabilia, I mean, things that were his, World Series rings, bats, and, you know, uh, you know, pictures of him and Joe and Marilyn Monroe at dinner or whatever. That He had lots of those just sitting in a trunk and stuff. Um, but... Uh, the day after he died, the IRS put a lien on his estate for eighty-seven thousand dollars because he hadn't paid his tax. He didn't understand the concept of taxes. 
uh, <laughs> like if he had come here and you gave him a check for a thousand dollars, he would go wherever the nearest bar is with somebody he probably met here that he had you know fun talking to, and they would you know he'd go and then he'd walk in the bar and he'd probably buy a drink for everybody who was there, and if they were nice to him, he'd keep buying drinks, and there'd go the whole thousand dollars, and and his agent the next day would say, so how much did you get paid for last night? And he'd go, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I spent. I already spent it, you know. And they'd say, "Well, Billy, like, you know, at least a quarter of that we have to pay taxes on." And he'd say, "Oh, that's your problem. You figure that out." You know? <laughs> I mean, he didn't ever keep. You know, his payroll, his paycheck got. They took the taxes out of everything else. So he was constantly in trouble with the IRS. He's constantly in trouble. I mean, that's one thing. Is all his wife said was that you know they they used to try to hide his money from him because he would just spend it all. And you know, his friends and his agents said that. I you know, used to say nobody did better uh, in New York than maitre d's and you know doormen and waiters and waitresses in New York when Billy was manager. You know, they they went up a tax bracket <laughs> <laughs> while he went while he didn't pay his taxes. Yes. Is Billy could somehow have read your book and then he met you in the bar? What would he say or do to you? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. The, uh, <laughs> I haven't thought about that. I think um, I think he would tell tell me I was wrong about like a hundred things, just because you know history's interpretation of what you know what he did is that he, some of these things were wrong and and uh, didn't work out and stuff like that. Uh, and he did, wasn't big for like saying he's it was his fault and stuff. So I'm sure he would have disagreed with me, but I don't think he'd be displeased. I I mean you know um, as I said, one of my goals was to sort of tell the whole story and and try and break or or shed light on something other than the caricature that's built up around him. That he's a dirt kicking lunatic who got fired a lot, and that's all there is to know. You know, five seconds of him kicking dirt on an umpire on ESPN. That's all you need to know. Uh, and so I think he would have been pleased because he did care about his image, especially late in his life. I, I mean, I was I heard him talk about it. You know how he could he would check in a hotel and the the, 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 the clerk would say, "You're not going to punch me, are you?" You know, and uh, all you know, and he says, "You know, I can't go anywhere. Everybody thinks I'm, you know, that's all I'm going to do." You know, and we you know, and so he was worried about his image. So I think I think he would like the idea that. I'm trying to <clears throat> show other sides of him. But yeah, there'd probably be something. It'd still be the same. I certainly wouldn't stay after the fourth or fifth drink to discuss the book. Because <laughs> I'm sure he would. Something that bothered him a little bit would become something that bothered him a lot. <laughs> did, did you like him? I did. I did. Uh, it, you know, I thought he was, as I said, I thought he was complicated and I thought he could be wrong a lot and I, I think you know and I thought that he um, mishandled some situations and, and he wasn't always you know he just he was an imperfect person uh, for sure but but at the at, in, in general I did like him. yeah I liked I liked being around him I found him entertaining um, you know maybe if I covered him for 15 years I might have felt differently or something but at, I, I liked him yeah. and all those times <coughs> he was on and off uh, or, or being fired was he ever off the 80s, Not from 83 uh, on. I mean, 93 on. 83 on. Uh, 
he, de- he actually never got fired again after he got hired in 83. He was reassigned. In 84, he was like a scout. Then he got brought back as manager. Then he got reassigned. And then he got, and he was a broadcaster and advisor. And he got, then he got hired as manager again in 88. And then when he was fired with the Yankees with a 40 and 28 record, he got fired. Um, uh, <clears throat> mostly because he got in this fight in the strip club in Texas and almost got killed. So that, that unnerved George. Can't imagine, <laughs> can't imagine why. Uh, uh, but he stayed, he still was an advisor. And uh, as I found out, it's been sort of rumored, but I nailed it down as true, and I got the exact scene of how it happened and everything. He was coming back in 1990 for Billy Six. I did an interview with Michael Kay, the Yankees broadcaster, who was on the beat with me in the late 80s and uh, working for the Daily News. And um, we both agreed that if he had lived, there would have at least been eight or nine. Billy <laughs> <laughs> eight or nine. At least Billy <laughs> eight or nine. Yes. Martin, during one or more of his years as Yankee manager, I remember the exact years in 79 and 86. Lived in the same apartment building as I lived in on the other side. And what I remember is when he was in the elevator, in the buying cell, or with a woman who I think was described as his girlfriend then, blonde, thin, with his haggard as people, like the way. Very haggard, and she was younger. They looked like they wanted to punch everybody out, and no one ever said a word to them on the elevator. Never heard anybody. I didn't even say the word. I'm not a Yankee season ticket holder. He looked like if he said hello, he was going to slow. Really? He looked like that every day. And I don't know if that is just, you know, I'm running into him when he's coming back from, you know, there were a lot of day games back then. In the evening, I'm coming home from work, he's coming back from the stadium. Or what? But he gave everybody in the building this very negative impression. Really? Yeah. And I, don't have, and I don't know if it had anything to do with this woman who I don't think was his wife yet. Was living with, I don't know. They both just looked like they were hung over 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, I, I, it's certainly, I don't, obviously, I don't doubt it. I mean, it, he had multiple sort of parts of his personality. Yeah. He could he could be a disagreeable guy, sure. I mean, I get, you know, I mean, it happened, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah so, um, you, 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 uh, a couple weeks ago on WFAN, you told the wonderful story about his first meeting with Cotamaggio, or as a, as a Yankee. So maybe you could share that with you. Also, um, uh, his, his Bay Area roots, um, PCL is still very much alive. Did he, have, did he have an early part of his career that was all in the PCL, in the, I guess, in the, the, the 40s? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. In fact, when he was growing up, uh, the uh, his the guys who played ball with him played in his high school team with him and were his buddies said that their only goal and, and, and Billy said he was going to play for the Yankees from the time he was a little kid I'm going to play for the Yankees and nobody took him seriously but <clears throat> the, that most of those guys felt that his real goal was to play for the Oakland Oaks in, in the Pacific Coast League and they really didn't he dreamed of going to New York and he told people that now that he made it we all sort of say well he always said it he's going to have but they sort of felt like that was the big leagues to them right. you know the Pacific Coast League was the big leagues to everybody who lived out there and, and that the major leagues was just this other planet that was so far away and, and so 
Yeah, no, he, he gets signed by the Oaks, plays in their minors. The whole goal is to get to the Oaks. And he plays on that 1948 o- Oakland Oaks team, which was a first time that they had been good in a long, long time. Casey's first year, they resurrect, and then he plays, and they win the champ- They win the league, I'm pretty sure. They win the championship. Casey was the man. Casey was the man. And that's really when he first meets with Casey. And Billy's not a big cog on that team. He spends most of his time knee-to-knee with Casey in the dugout. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why aren't we hitting run here? Why did you have that guy steal? Why is the you know, And Casey taught him lots of things like how the how the infielders walk and tip off pitches based, you know, and where they're you know, they, they move before they're supposed to move, you know. I mean everybody knows shortstop to a you know, left handed hitter might move towards second on a curve ball. It's not supposed to move to the guys in his wind up. He starts moving a little early. Okay, you think it's probably a curveball coming. You know, so um, uh, and then 49, Casey goes to the Yankees, and Billy stays there, and Charlie Dressen's his manager, but he learns a lot from Dressen, too. And so, you know, the PCL was really influential, and then he goes to the majors, but, and just to bet your first question, so when Billy comes in <coughs> to the Yankee clubhouse the first time, the, the, most of the players in the Yankees don't even talk to the guy. I mean, they don't even make eye contact. They're all afraid of him. You know, he's this regal guy, gets dressed in a suit every day, <coughs> comes in, Plays ball, leaves, doesn't talk to anybody. Billy's new to the clubhouse his first day there. He just walks across the room and introduces him, say, Hey, I'm Billy Martin, you know, let's go to dinner tonight, you know. <laughs> and uh, and Dimaggio, like, says, Okay, we'll go at seven. And, like, I remember talking to him about this, like, how did you, where did you find the, you know, the, the gumption to do this? And he just said, oh, He's just not a guy, you know. I mean, he grew up in San Francisco. I mean, what's, you know, I thought, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. And it's true, he was never afraid of anybody. And so he uh, he did, and then he'd say, yeah, you know, and then he'd tell these stories about the 50s, and he always say stuff like that. Yeah, so Joe and Marilyn and I were having dinner, and Frank comes over, you know, and he's like, hey. <laughs> well, as a, uh, as a Sinatra fanatic, I loved every Sinatra mention in the book. And we can get to any other questions, but uh, we're gonna, because of the time factor, we're going to have to say farewell to the podcast audience. So the only thing I want to say is, a couple of years ago, uh, there's, a, there's an organization uh, that gives out the best baseball book of the year. It's called the Casey Award. And Mike Shannon, who runs it, not, not the former ball player, Mike right. Shannon, he calls me up and he says, we'd like to have you as one of the three judges. I said, I'm very honored. I said, what do I have to do? He said, well, we're going to give you the ten nominated books and then you just have to put them in order and then we take the three judges and whoever gets the most votes wins his best baseball book of the year. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a breeze because I'm sure all ten books we've had those authors here for that year. So now I get the list. All for ten. We didn't have, we didn't have one of the books. On the list. I know this is great. Now i got to read ten other baseball books for this. Although, frankly, we had a lot better books that year. Uh, but anyway, this is the second time I'm saying this in 2015. I have nothing to do with the Casey Award anymore, by the way. I can't be a judge again. The first time I said it, and I'm not just saying this because he's here, but... When Ward Zachter was here with Gil Hodges, I said, that should be one of the ten nominated books. And the second book that I'm sure will be nominated this year is Billy Martin, Baseball's Flawed Genius, published by Houghton, Mifflin, Harcourt, written by Bill Pennington. Thank Thank you very much. much.